This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? All right. Thanks so much, Nina. I'll give you guys just a second to appreciate <laughs> these tweets. <laughs> a lot of these people kind of in like the, the top left here are kind of arguing about why hesitancy is just humorous, right? And then people have all sorts of very interesting theories about why it's not a good idea to get the vaccine. <laughs> and a lot of them are really grounded in fear, as you'll notice, and not really in a lot of logic. However, we will see examples of vaccine hesitancy and misinformation online that are very scientific in nature. And these are the bits of information that are going to really be convincing for a lot of people. And these are what's going to be contributing to a lot of the hesitancy. When we talk about vaccine hesitancy, there's a lot of reasons that are very, very granular. And I'm gonna cover like three of these today. So the very kind of first thing I'll go through is what hesitancy really looks like. Who does it impact? The identity of the people that vaccine hesitancy ends up impacting actually has a lot to do and might even be able to explain why they are so reluctant to get the vaccine and be a great contributor to society and protect not just themselves, but those around them. And then the other thing that we have to keep in mind is how easily accessible misinformation is. You might scroll past misinformation on social media, and depending on how much time you spend on social media every day, who you follow, who you trust, who you listen to, you'll probably end up being convinced that the vaccine is a very bad thing, that it's dangerous in some way, uh, that the government is out to get you <laughs> and it's completely fake and all of these wild theories about what exactly is happening. And of course, the third thing, and maybe you guys have seen this or perhaps noticed this in the past year, the politicization of the vaccine. Previous administration throughout 2020 they did a really good job of confusing people and they did that for political gain. If the majority of Republican Americans, and by the way, politics and who you identify with in terms of politics um, is certainly a predictor of whether or not you're going to be hesitant about the vaccine. And the final thing, and this part I, I tried to go in as much depth as I could, is scientific racism. Unfortunately, another predictor of vaccine hesitancy is if you are a part of what's called a minority racial group, if you are a Latino or a Latina, if you are a Black American or an African American, right? All of these things are also predictors of whether or not you or these people might, are likely to be hesitant. So, <clears throat> and 
there's going to be a lot of historical context here when it comes to why these groups of people specifically are hesitant about the vaccine. It doesn't really have much to do with identity, but unfortunately it has to do with a lot of very bad history that this community has had with scientists in particular and medical professionals. And we'll certainly uh, talk about that as well. So here's kind of a little bit more detail about the predictors of hesitancy. So the study that I cite at the bottom of this slide, they had a pretty good sample size and they surveyed around 1900 people. And really they found that there's a couple general predictors of hesitancy. So political affiliation and racial and ethnic background are some. And then the other one that was really interesting is if this person believed that COVID-19 was a threat to themselves or their family. So at some point when cases started leveling out, there wasn't that many, you weren't hearing about all of these people dying every day, people started deciding, well, COVID isn't really a threat, I don't need this vaccine. And this is very much the position of a good percentage of vaccine-hesitant people. And of course, another interesting idea is whether or not they were a male or female. And interestingly, females do make up a larger proportion of vaccine-hesitant people, but in another study, it showed that they were also more likely to question misinformation. But nothing on males, but yeah, that's kind of what they found in general. If we go a little bit deeper, people with children at home, this one is really interesting because a lot of you guys might have learned probably from what Nina was talking about, how we recently had this uptick in measles which is super rare, but uh, a lot of people, a lot of parents are very afraid about the relationship between early childhood vaccination um, and autism, so that might explain it. But really, the paper didn't offer that many explanation about what was the thing with like children at home, but they were just more likely to be hesitant, which is very interesting given that they would want to protect their children. But the other thing about political affiliation, so anyone that was a Republican or an independent was also more likely to be vaccine hesitant. And of course, if they weren't really concerned about COVID, they didn't think it was necessary. So, here is kind of another quote from the paper, and I know this is a lot of percentages, but this is really saying that from the people that they surveyed nationwide, from this 1900, 1800 people, 34% were African-Americans, 29% were Hispanic, and then 25% were people that had children at home around 30% were people that lived in rural areas. Maybe they didn't have access to traditional healthcare and healthcare education, public health services, etc. These are kind of the hard numbers about who is vaccine hesitant. Here is another very interesting study. And what I really like about this is that the sample size is like many fold larger. So this is around 7,500 7, people nationwide. And it tells us virtually the same thing. <laughs> and I think a really important trend to recognize here is that when you guys are looking at scientific data, especially in social research or in biomedical research, sample sizes are really important. And if you could compare two studies that were done maybe in the same year or even in separate years, right? And find like the same thing that they confirm each other, that's a really great kind of 
fact check or sanity check so that what the information that you're looking at is pretty much accurate to the most extent it can be. But really here, this reveals that the population of vaccine-hesitant people among the racial and ethnic groups that we discuss, African-American or Black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, and white Americans, it might actually be a little bit higher than the percentages we got before just because the sample size is larger. And of course, so 47% of Republicans, not just 30%. And of course, a, a very sad, unfortunate 49% of Black Americans, right? The 21% definitely would not get a vaccine and the yellow is like they probably wouldn't get it but at least for the majority of these the yellow bars are slightly larger percentages so these people we have a chance of convincing definitely not is super strong and it's questionable whether or not we could sort of bring them back with enough information and and things but yeah this is really an overview of what are the types of people that would be vaccine hesitant? And of course, they have a lot of reasons for their hesitancy. And these are kind of in general, they aren't coming from specific groups of people. The majority of vaccine hesitant people are afraid of long-term illness or death. And this one is really ironic because like Nina mentioned, long COVID or having neurological symptoms after being diagnosed with COVID-19 and perhaps having recovered from the original symptoms is an actual real threat. Like there are people that spend months and months in physical rehabilitation to gain their normal range of motion after they've had COVID. This is really, really serious. And of course, we know that probably over half a million Americans to date, I'm not sure of the exact numbers now, have died from COVID. <laughs> and it's like the, the top reason is long-term illness or death. And it's like, dude, this is exactly what we're trying to avoid. And when we think about vaccine efficacy, and I know that Ellie is gonna go into this a bit later, but all of the vaccines, regardless of the company that made them, are 100% effective at preventing death from COVID-19. This is the only time when scientists can tell you 100% <laughs> effective, right? Because really in clinical trials, when they gave people the vaccine or they gave them a placebo, anyone that got COVID, which was a very, very small percentage, we're talking probably less than 3% of people that got COVID even after having been vaccinated, they didn't die. Everyone survived. I'm not sure about the statistics on whether or not they had long COVID, but hopefully not. I don't think, or I don't remember reading anything about it. So that's a really good sign as well. The second thing is allergic reactions. A lot of people, and of course, stories about allergic reactions will circulate among certain people, especially on Facebook. <laughs> this one, sometimes there is an air of validity to it. I mean, and all of these are certainly valid, but then there is also the argument that having allergic reactions 
Asians is incredibly, incredibly rare. But unfortunately, it's really difficult to be able to understand risk factors for allergic reactions sometimes because a lot of it might come down to your genetics and accessibility to sequencing and understanding sort of all of these genetic variants and how they could interplay and induce any sort of risk when you take a vaccine, it's super complicated. And sometimes it might not even be genetics, it might be other factors like pre-existing diseases. And this is actually one of the other reasons for hesitancy. And then the three in the middle are really more based in fear. They might be based on stories that were kind of passed down between family members. So thinking that the vaccine would change your DNA, since we're talking about an mRNA vaccine, which was like the first, the first COVID vaccine available, and then that it would affect someone's fertility, which I still don't understand that connection, but people absolutely have theories for these. Some might be rooted in some true science, but then it turns into pseudoscience. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very long drawn out story about the connection. And it's like, well, this hasn't been scientifically demonstrated. And of course, the fact that they don't really understand what the ingredients are. Let's talk a little bit about misinformation. So this was a very interesting study. It was published in Nature Human Behavior. If you guys don't know already, Nature is a really great journal. Most of the what's published in Nature is really good material. It's been really well thought out. There are a few exceptions though, <laughs> but here they wanted to simulate the effect of misinformation on whether or not it would change someone's mind about getting the vaccine, okay? So they surveyed 8,001 participants across the United Kingdom and the US, and they split those participants equally, and they had what's called a treatment group and a control group. So the treatment group was exposed to misinformation about the vaccine, maybe a tweet or a quote of some kind, or maybe someone took information from a scientific study out of context and they started making their own conclusions about what it meant for the vaccine and all of these things, right? And the control group received sound scientific information about the vaccine. And then they were asked to answer a bunch of questions about their feelings on the vaccine and their positions. And then after they were exposed to the misinformation, they asked them again, like, hey, where'd you take the vaccine? How do you feel about it? And of course, they collected socio-demographic characteristics, so like age, gender, their employment, their education, uh, and their political affiliation, ethnicity, etc. And really the most interesting, profound finding, which I'll share in a moment, was really about what happened when people saw misinformation. And this is an example of something that a survey participant would see um, in the treatment group. So this is a tweet. They actually have a link to it. Like they linked it in the supplemental, but I didn't link it here. But really, this is a great example of something that's scientific misinformation. I want you to keep in mind a bunch of keywords. First, they say Yale University and the US government. Immediately, that establishes credibility, right? Well, it's Yale University and the US government. This can't be wrong, right? And then they're running clinical trials to develop propaganda messaging. 
number one. Clinical trials are usually only to test a specific scientific treatment, right? A vaccine, some kind of therapy, etc. And then to persuade Americans to take experimental, genetically engineered, unlicensed, warp speed, zero liability. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, right? First of all, they use words that aren't really understandable. So if someone doesn't understand what genetic engineering is, they're just going to be afraid of it. Okay, straight up. Experimental, unlicensed, warp speed, right? They give this air of they don't know what they're doing, right? Experimental means that we're still testing it out in mice and we don't know if it actually works in humans and it might cause all of these weird, crazy side effects, right? Unlicensed, shutting down the credibility um, of whatever the clinical trials are about. Warp speed, Ellie's gonna talk a lot about this one because this one scared a lot of people. If you don't know what this is referring to, basically the government had sort of this movement or campaign and they put a lot of funding into public and, and private pharmaceutical companies to develop the vaccine because they understood that COVID was a global emergency. And they called this Operation Warp Speed because they knew they had to act incredibly fast. And interestingly, all it takes is just a lot of money to produce vaccines at the speed that we actually need them to be produced at. And our guest on the episode, one of our guests anyway, he's going to talk about how if this amount of money was invested in vaccines previous to the one for COVID, we would have had and met a lot more medical needs by now. And then they end with like a very extreme statement at the end. So they're like researchers compared reactions in 12 focus groups using guilt, embarrassment, bravery, anger, trust, and fear to overcome vaccine hesitancy. If the sentence before that didn't make you vaccine hesitant, they just wanted to make sure that, <laughs> make sure that you were scared kind of about this whole thing. Of course, this wasn't, real and the comments that the authors have about this tweet, they actually opened up the study that they were referring to. None of this actually happened. And the study was just comparing um, whether or not having the flu increased your exposure or increased the likelihood of your exposure to COVID-19, etc. It was a really harmless study, <laughs> but they decided to take it, pull some quotes from random places and just string it together and make this seemingly profound argument that isn't really rooted in logic or scientific evidence. So here's the outcome of this interesting study, right? Basically, when you showed people misinformation, and they originally, before seeing any of what you showed them, would want to take the vaccine. Now, you basically decrease the number of people that wanted to take the vaccine by around 6% if you showed them misinformation. And unfortunately, people that are sharing misinformation that are exposed to it might not really change their minds because when we think about social media algorithms, right? Social media will recommend things that you want to see. So if it notices that you're sharing information of a certain kind or content of a certain kind, it's gonna recommend that content in your feed. So then all you're seeing is things that agree with your perspective. And this is what we call confirmation bias or basically having this 
increases or enhances your confirmation bias. If you're looking for something specific on the internet to validate your position, the internet will help you find it. <laughs> because that's the job of Google and, and the internet. It's really going to help you retrieve what you uh, typed in and mirror kind of your positions. So just because there's a decrease, it doesn't mean that they're never going to change their minds in the future. Absolutely. But the fact that seeing like four or five pieces of misinformation was enough to change their minds is a, is a little bit of a dangerous thought. It's a little scary. So keep in mind that even when you're trying to understand the problem of vaccine hesitancy, a lot of the studies that are done to try to interpret what's going through people's heads, how does this work, there's a lot of external variables that you really can't control for. But now let's talk a little bit about scientific racism. And I know that I, I had politicization also on the list in the outline, but I think focusing a lot more on scientific racism was going to be very helpful just so that you get some context. And really, I want to talk about vaccine hesitancy among the, the Black and or African American community because they have dealt with a lot of unfairness. This is like a very small word, but very traumatic experiences in history when it comes to their relationship with scientists, scientific experimentation, and, and clinical trials, etc. And to this day, there are disparities among the Black and African American communities in healthcare. And of course, it has been demonstrated by nearly hundreds of studies at this point that there is a disparity and that Black Americans are more likely to get COVID-19. So this is a really important topic to talk about. And I'm going to start and introduce this by talking about the Tuskegee experiment. And this study, it was supposed to be a clinical trial. And what they wanted to do was record the natural history of syphilis. So they wanted to understand syphilis, which was a sexually transmitted disease. They wanted to understand how it progressed and what the outcomes were for humans. Of course, this uh, is absurd because scientists found that penicillin is the treatment of choice for syphilis. All you need is an antibiotic, right? And of course, it was probably known at the time in mouse studies what the progression of syphilis is. But they did this human trial anyway, and the very traumatic part is that the study occurred without informed consent. And basically they were told that they were going to be treated for what was called bad blood at the time. And this was basically a catch-all term, like an all-encompassing or general term for many conditions like anemia, fatigue, and syphilis as well. But they were basically told that you have a problem and we're actually treating you. Um, and so they were enrolled in this study and of course they wanted to do it over six months, but they basically started taking batches and batches of people looking at syphilis progression over six months. Certainly some lives were lost. People became severely ill because they actually weren't receiving the treatment. So in the long 
term, they had to deal with the effects of chronic syphilis, which is an incredibly, incredibly traumatizing. And of course, it's very clear, you guys, at this point, that they were taken advantage of in this way solely because of their race. And it really hurts my heart to present a case like this, but this is not the only case in history where this has happened to members of the African-American or Black community. This is just one example. And there's going to be countless, countless case studies like this one that are going to demonstrate um, how powerful scientific racism can be. And unfortunately, things like this did not happen and were just forgotten by the Black and African-American community. This has led to distrust in medical professionals, distrust in the government, distrust in scientists, generations upon generations after it happened. And we're looking at the effects of it today, today, in 2021. Um, so when did this end right essentially there's this reporter her name is jean heller and she's affiliated with the associated press and she broke the story of this study in 1972 and this 40 years later it was going on for 40 years and no one knew about it until she was courageous enough to report on it and it led to this huge public outcry that forced the study to conclude but only recently, maybe like over a decade ago, or maybe two decades ago, when Bill Clinton was president, only then did survivors of the study receive this very much public apology. But obviously, that isn't really enough to reverse the generations that had to deal with the trauma of something like this. So let's think about what this means for the Black and African American community today. So, like I said before, medical and scientific misconducts, specifically on the basis that they were Black or African American, is really a big reason for why a lot of communities mistrust science and scientists and medical professionals today. And let's take a look at the effect of this. So here I'm citing a study that was done in Pennsylvania. And essentially, these medical professionals from the University of Pennsylvania uh, Medical School sat down with members of the African-American community kind of locally, and they did what was called like focus groups. So essentially, a focus group is you sit down with four or five people from the community that you're trying to survey, and then you ask them questions and you invite them to a discussion about their perspective on a specific issue. So here they were asked about their perspective on the vaccine, what are they worried about? And here they collected some statistics on the background of these community members. So 79% of them said that they knew someone that got infected with COVID. And even though all of the members of the study wore masks in public consistently, only 42% of them said that their family members uh, or people in the community consistently wore masks. And of course, this is just a very tiny spotlight on the reality of this, right? So 
the problem in these communities might actually be a lot bigger. The reason why a lot of Black Americans are more likely to get COVID-19 has a lot to do with where they're living. It has a lot to do with what access they have to healthcare, what access they have to personal protective equipment, and a lot of other factors. And this kind of just captures a little bit of that. But let's look at what these community members said. And this is just one example, just to keep it brief. So this person said that in the Black community, everybody is on high alert. Right? They're very distrusting because we don't know what's going to be perpetrated against us. And on another level, you see what's going on with police brutality and things, and things have been caught on tape and it's not being addressed. So it's not weird in thinking that the vaccines that go to these zip codes, which is probably the zip code that they live in and the zip codes around them, would be tainted or maybe this is just my paranoia. And it really broke my heart to read this. And of course, the sample size for this study was around 24 people. It was pretty small. And the authors say like, oh, this might not be representative of everyone in the Black or African American community. But the fact that one person says this probably means that people in their social circle, people in their family can resonate with this and absolutely relate. And there's a lot of dimensions to this statement, right? So the first kind of thing that really stands out to me at least is we don't know what's going to be perpetrated against us, right? This really goes back to a lot of times in history when this community specifically in a scientific context felt that something was perpetrated against them, and rightfully so, as we've seen with the Tuskegee experiments and a bunch of others. And then there's the dimensionality of current events and more social justice issues, right? So the fact that conflict and protest and this uprising in terms of police brutality and social injustice against this community also became incredibly severe during the pandemic. And the fact that they didn't see action was being taken to protect them as a community also deepens or reveals an even deeper mistrust in the government and just leadership in, in general and any form of authority in general. And of course, this varies person to person. And then they would say that it won't be unexpected if perhaps the vaccines that come to our community are tainted in some way or they're lower quality in some way, or maybe will be targeted again in a very similar way as the Tuskegee experiment, right? So it's really important when we think about vaccine hesitancy, especially when it comes to racial and ethnic groups, to understand where they are coming from when they are hesitant, specifically for, for this community. And now this really leaves us with the question of what can we do about this? And of course, Ellie is going to do a really great job of educating you guys about busting myths, right? So when you see a myth online, when you hear someone say something, 
you are essentially going to be prepared to talk back <laughs> um, and say, by the way, that's not correct and here's why. But on a larger scale, what we need to do is figure out who vaccine hesitant people trust. And we're going to teach these sources, these trusted sources to address the concerns of vaccine hesitant people. And Reverend Holtz in our podcast episode, she's going to talk a lot about this. And fortunately, it was such an honor to sit down with her and talk to her because she is someone that was trusted in her community. And she's going to tell you all about how she leveraged that to help people understand why getting the vaccine was a good idea in her community. So here's a few statistics from the very first paper I cited, and these are going to point us to tools we can use. So first it says 50% of vaccine hesitant adults usually trust their medical provider. So this means that if we teach medical providers to address vaccine hesitancy, uh, to, to have a personal conversation with their patients about the vaccine, maybe do a live stream on Facebook or wherever else their patients are connected to them to answer questions and concerns they have, which has already been happening. The second thing is that trust in elected community officials was greater in Black adults and Hispanic or Latinx adults, and it was also higher among Democrats than Republicans, right? So this tells us that elected community officials, maybe the mayor of someone's town, or maybe a elected leader in a volunteer or community organization or community center that these people are likely to trust, this person should be highly educated about vaccines, vaccine science, to be able to address concerns. And finally, Republicans are more likely than Democrats to trust religious leaders in their communities. So this means that religious leaders also, we need to cover all of our bases, they need to be educated about vaccine science and the importance of getting the vaccine for their community members so that they could call it out. I think Ellie could take it away. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie. The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.